Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. In this part two of my interview with Solari Investment Advisor, follow the money expert and whistleblower, Catherine Austin Fitz, you'll learn how the U.S. financial system, the U.S. government, and by extension, U.S. citizens are all addicted to drug money and the proceeds of a plethora of criminal operations around the world. Fitz's explanation is part of several accounts she'll provide of real events she personally experienced from high-level professional perches in both the public and private sectors that best taught her how the world really works. Those perches included her positions as managing director and member of the board of directors of the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dylan Reed & Co., and as assistant secretary of housing and federal housing commissioner at the United States Department of housing and urban development. Welcome, Catherine. Oh, thank you for having me back. Part two, this is gonna be good. You were the one who proposed the subject of this, this, part, uh, this part two, which is uh -huh. stories that describe the events that best taught us how the world really works. What story would you start with first? The Red Vital story was one of the greatest ahas moments of my life, which, was extremely uncomfortable because I was in the middle of a speech. <laughs> so I'm giving a speech to a wonderful group of people. It was at Rosemont College outside of Philadelphia. And they have a conference once a year. Their group is called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation International. And they're very well educated. And they get together and talk about how can we help evolve our society spiritually. Very concerned, very committed. I would say very hardworking mostly very financially secure people, and uh, but a, a very well-educated and, and caring audience of people, nice people, people you'd like to know. So I'm a friend of mine who's a wonderful healthcare practitioner asked me to give a speech on how the money works on organized crime so that people can understand the problem of corruption and the relationship between Wall Street and Washington. And it later became a story called Narco Dollars for Beginners that was very popular. And if you want to understand sort of the content, I have an online book called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Anyway, so I'm in the middle of the speech and I'm describing the congressional testimony on the Dark Alliance allegations. So Congress had testimony, I think it was in 1998. Explain to the audience what the Dark Alliance. The Dark Alliance allegations were irrefutable evidence that the U.S. intelligence agencies under the auspices of the National Security uh, uh, National Security Council, uh, with enormous help from the Clintons <laughs> in Arkansas, were, were basically bringing drugs, facilitating bringing drugs into the United States and marketing them into, into U.S. neighborhoods, and that was part of the crack cocaine epidemic. So um, the U.S. Congress held testimony on it, and during the testimony, the period of the testimony, a, a spokesperson for the Department of Justice told Kelly O'Meara, who was covering them and trying to make sense of this, that the U.S. government, uh, sorry, the U.S. financial system launders $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year of all illegal money. So not just narcotics trafficking, but financial fraud, illegal gambling, you know, slave trafficking, the whole nine yards. And so that's the, the amount in 1998 to, to you know, at, during that time period, obviously the number is much greater now, but so, so I was explaining to this audience of wonderfully spiritually evolved and committed people, uh, you know, uh, the fact that this had happened and this is what the Department of Justice had said. So I said, 
you know, what would happen if we stopped being the global leader in illegal money and money laundering? And this, we had a little sort of interactive conversation and they said, well, we'd have trouble financing the government deficit because the government needs to borrow the profits and accumulated capital from these people. And we'd have, you know, if that money left our stock market, you know, it would leave the New York Stock Exchange and go to Zurich and Hong Kong and Singapore. And so our IRAs and retirement accounts might go down. You know, we might, our government checks might stop. We might have problems, you know, uh, our taxes could go up if we couldn't, you know, issue treasury securities. So I said, okay, well, let's pretend there's a big red button up, up on the lectern. And if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your neighbor, your city, your, your town, your state tomorrow, thus offending the people who control 500 billion to a trillion dollars a year and the accumulated capital thereon. And out of a hundred people dedicated to evolving our societies spiritually, only one would push the red button. Wow. So I said to the other 99, that's what I was like, huh? Because if I had voted, there would be two. So I said, why would you not push the red button? And they said, well, we don't want our government checks to stop and we don't want our, um, our IRAs to go down in value and we don't want our taxes to go up. And I said, okay, so what you're saying is you want the US intelligence agencies to continue to facilitate bringing drugs across the border to, to market to the children in your community to keep your IRA up. And what I discovered that day, because I was in a state of what? What I discovered that day, the problem was not that they wouldn't push the red button. The problem was that they wouldn't go into the invention room and have a conversation about how do we turn the red button green? What do I mean by turning the red button green? Clearly, you don't get rich destroying the, the kids and the young people and the people in your neighborhood by overwhelming it with organized crime. And so, you know, what I discovered that day is America is not so much addicted to drugs it's, or hard narcotics, it's addicted to drug money. And, you know, this is the problem with what I call the central banking warfare model, which is you know, the central banks print money, the warfare, you know, the, 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 the military industrial complex makes sure everybody takes the money and around and around we go. And so we become dependent on organized crime cash flows, whether, whether we're doing it directly or it's coming indirectly. And, um, and that's when I realized, okay, we need to learn as a society how to have a conversation about how to turn the red button green, you know, because that's step one to change. And when you get deeply into how you do turn the red button green, you know, it's going to take bottom up local action. America's 3,100 counties, and you need to change your drug addiction one person, one family, and one county at a time. Now, another, another, there's not a great story, but I want to just end the red button story with this. One of the reasons I discovered, I used to do church hopping. So I, I went through a process of trying to understand the economy by driving all over the country. And, um, and the question was, how could 70% of Americans say they were Christians, but we're all making money from organized crime and warfare? You know, how does that work? And one of the things I discovered was there was a trade called the story of I am good. Okay, and here's how it works. <clears throat> At the end of World War II, George Keenan said, we have 50% 
of the resources in 6% of the people. And to keep that going, we're gonna to have to drop a lot of bombs. And so Goldwater came along and said, you know, we're gonna to have to drop a lot of bombs. And people said, no, 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 that's, we're good Christians, we don't like that. So then Jimmy Carter came along and said, okay, well, we can't drop a lot of bombs. We're gonna to have to cut back. So he shivered in front of the fireplace. Remember that when he, he did his fireplace speech? And the Americans said, no, 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 we don't want to cut back. So the Bushies came along and said, you know something, you're great Christians. Here's your check. Don't ask questions. But then they got the story of I'm good. We're going to Iraq because we want to save the women from this repressive society. You know, So there's always, if you look at any buy-in politically by the American people for more organized crime and war, there's always a story of why you can go along because you're good, right? The veneer, that's the, the cover story. Okay. So here's the yeah. thing. You have two groups. You've got the Bushies who want all the money and don't need a story. I mean, Dick Cheney does not need a story of I'm good and, and would be very offended by people wanting it, you know, whereas the Bushes would say, oh, you know, Dick, don't be a, don't be a hard ass. Let's give him the story of I'm good. You know, so the Bushies want all the money. And but, the, you know, the rest of us just were willing to, to go for a modest amount plus the story of I am good. And that was the trade politically. You know, this group gets all the money and, and the, the power and control and, and everybody will go along with, you know, the Kennedy cover-up or the Iran-Contra cover-up as long as they get, you know, a, a percent of the action, they're willing to buy in for a modest percent of the action and the story of I am good. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you, if you watch what's happening with interest rates and inflation, you know, that modest little bit of money is getting wiped out now. And the story, you know, as the inflation bites, people are rejecting the story of I'm good because it's not enough. They want their check. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they come up with, you know, a square deal. And I think they can't, which is why they want the complete control through the QR codes and the the CBDC. Explain but, what the QR codes and CBDC is to the audience. They, they want a financial transaction control that will give them complete control. So if you don't behave, they can turn off your money. And um, a, the best way to understand this is a 57 second video. You come into Slary and you click on the Cash Friday and Everyday link. You'll have a video of the top central banker in the world, Karstens, who's the general manager of the BIS explaining that they can make the rules and turn off your money or control your money. So literally, if they don't want you transacting more than five miles from your home, you can't. All your digital money will stop working. Anyway, so, so let's go back to my first story, the red button story. It was that amazing moment when I realized, oh, this is why all this corruption has tremendous buy-in from the general population. And that's how it works. And, and the thing that keeps it going is the absence of transparency. And, and I'm gonna keep coming back to the absence of transparency because it all holds together. If the corrupt leader, if the leaders doing this can get buy-in by giving people a story of why they can go along and they're still good. After you did the red button exercise, did anybody in the audience say, well then, because obviously, they want it, they want to continue the system out of survival fear. You know, they want to be able to pay their bills, have a house over their head, et cetera. Did any one of them say to you, well, how do we fix this so that we don't have this survival fear? How do we survive yeah. pushing the red button? Yes. And, and so we didn't deep dive it that day because it's a very long conversation because you're talking about 
re-engineering the financial system bottom up, but obviously it can be done. And the little secret from the, all the work and numbers I've done is the wealth explosion that would happen would be fantastic. In other words, tyranny is unbelievably expensive. So another story was when I started to litigate with the federal government, it was one of those crazy enemy, the state situations where everything is incoherent, nothing makes sense. They're not obeying the law. You know, it's a puzzle palace and, and everything. So, and all these situations are shaggy dog stories and you've dealt with them. So you know what this looks like. Anyway, we had an insurance policy and the insurance company was responsible to defend us. And they ended up trying to stick in attorneys who I didn't like or agree with. And normally I would have kept them out, but the Department of Justice and the HUD IG had done a very good job of just destroying hundreds of actually millions of my dollars, you know, doing my own defense. Anyway, and then suddenly we got these state lawsuits that were all over the country. And so we had to exercise it because we needed law firms all over the country. Okay, so they stick in a, a lawyer who's just not acceptable. We reject him, they stick in another lawyer. And to say the tension between him and me is off the charts, it's very significant. So we're in this conference room and the goal of the meeting is for me to brief him and his associates at his law firm, as well as I think it was 11 or 12 other attorneys to represent the different states. They just needed a basic briefing. And it was myself and my general counsel. And we were the only two women. Everybody was like 12 men, plus the guys from the insurance company. And I had a brilliant attorney who represented me in the court of claims and was the key reason why in the end I won. And so he was there. Briefly explain to the audience, just remind them what happened, what you exposed and how they came after your business after that. Essentially, my company was the lead financial advisor to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And we were helping a really great group of, of uh, members of the bureaucracy, the senior staff, basically stop a lot of the fraud that was going on at HUD. And we were using transparency, but we were also using transactions. And the more that happened, the less profits were disappearing out the back door. And in fact, they wanted to start stealing money in great amounts out the back door. And so you know, we were taking the fraud down. When you were saying they, who are you talking about? I would say Andrew Cuomo and, and his group, as well as the people who access covert revenues from HUD. You know, Oliver North once called during Iran-Contra said HUD was the candy store of covert revenues. And when you clean up HUD defaults and fraud, you know, you're cleaning out a lot of things that were involved in the covert. You're cleaning side. out the pipeline for extracting the money. So you're slowing down the pipeline. And so so we were reducing the money going out the back door. And and remember, it's not just the, you know, the intelligence agencies and sort of the covert players. It's also there are a lot of investors you're applying with them. So you you know you have some of the biggest investors in the world who were deep My in my God, and, Catherine, it's yeah. amazing you're still alive. Okay, right. go ahead. We were falsely accused by a whistleblower of not handling. We were lead financial advisor to HUD and we led uh, $10 billion of mortgage auctions that were very successful, made HUD a fantastic amount of money, which was money that couldn't go out the back door because now it had been booked, okay? So, so the 
you know, so the private and the spooky guys were losing money and the taxpayer was winning. And of course, that's the, the one thing you may not do in Washington is help the taxpayer at the cost of everybody else. So anyway, so we were falsely accused of, of doing things wrong in the loan sales, which was ridiculous. And what happened was they brought a key tam under seal and then they brought a civil suit. This was done by a private whistleblower who was losing business because he was playing, he was doing dirty stuff and we kicked him out. Anyway, so, so, so the Department of Justice has different divisions operating um, and they seized the money that they owed us. They refused to pay their bills. So we had three different divisions at the Department of Justice and they were all taking opposing positions in, in the different courts. So, the, so they would say, in this court, the sky is green. In this court, the sky is blue. In this court, the sky is yellow. And they would tell the judges, we can't consolidate the cases because we want to take opposite positions in different courts. <laughs> no, we have them on record. I mean, it's- That is fraud right there. I mean, God. We caught them falsifying evidence on an obstruction of justice charge. We documented it and turned it into the court. And the special master said, Oh, that's SOP. We had an affidavit of an eyewitness who, who watched them falsify evidence. I can who was that. head of justice at that time? All I, mean, I remember was Jamie Gorlick was the, was the deputy who was said to be um, you know, umbrelling this. She's a piece of work. Yes, she is. Anyway, and she got paid back with a position at Fannie. Yeah, Morgan. She's Fox. never seen a day inside a jail cell and never, probably never will. I don't know that. Uh, you know, you oh. never know how these things may turn. I don't know. In Jamie Gorlick's defense, she's making the the central banking warfare model work. Why should that be in her defense if if she's actually committing for you know enabling the commitment of fraud? Because um, the American people all want their check. They want their stocks to go up. If we make you president tomorrow, you walk in the Oval Office. And your Carl Rove guys up comes up to you and he says, you know, we've spent $5 billion getting you elected president. And now everybody wants their check. They want their government contract. They want their community block development grant. They want their social security COLA, you know, a wide spectrum, you know, so, so now you, you better up the budget and you turn around to your secretary of treasury and say, okay, how am I going to get the money to do this? And especially now because total tax receipts are approaching the total interest on the debt, right? Wow. And which is why the stolen money is so important because did that finance expenses or did that finance bank robbery? So, so your secretary of treasury is gonna say, Madam President, you know, if you want to finance all these things, then you're gonna to need to borrow money from the people who control 500 billion to a trillion dollars of of you know accumulated capital and everybody wants this game to keep going. So, you know, if eight if if ninety nine percent of the most spiritually evolved people in the country don't want you to push the right button, exactly how are you supposed to do that? Well, basically, an angel, <laughs> if an angel were elected, that angel would would do just would would not do that and would blow him or herself up in that position publicly to bring the fraud down. That's well, what would be required. Remember, You'd have to blow yourself up. Well, but here's the thing. The Secret Service report to whom? The Department of the Treasury, the Secretary of the Treasury, right? Okay. Yes, that's so, so strange. So, well, no, because 
remember that what the Kennedy assassination proved is the Secret Service guns turn out and they turn in. Yes. Right? Right. Yes. So what is the president supposed to do that we, if we're not willing to do it in our communities, one community at a time, what's the president supposed to do? Yes, that's true. Right. That is true. And that's why solutions really come from transparency. So let's hold this thought that we're, we're in the conference room and it's, it's my attorney and myself and all these guys. And at one point, somebody suggests that uh, the technicality, one of the technicalities they were using not to pay their bill was that a subcontractor, ATT Bell Laboratories had made a mistake and we had caught it and fixed it. And according to the government witness that they ultimately used, there was no cash loss to the government. And we reported it because we had a lessons learned. And it was on two sales where we made them a fortune. So it was kind of dancing on ahead of, you know, it was one of these technicalities. Anyway, um, but he said, you know, we could just blame it on, you know, the subcontractor. And I said, well, my understanding, my agreement with the company was that I would take 100% responsibility for all political problems. They would be protected from it. That was my deal with them. And he said, well, I think we could interpret the contract otherwise. I said, no, we can't interpret my word otherwise because I'm going to testify that was my word. So I don't care how you, you know, what little games you play with the contract. I gave my word. I'm going to keep my word. And so the new attorney, they were trying to stuff in, looks at me and he says, well, you know, the insurance company doesn't want you to take that position. And if you don't do what we say, we could drop representation and you, without representation, you're going to prison. So I turned to him. <laughs> I turned to him and I said, because in fact, for an insurance company to threaten you that way is a violation of insurance law. Okay, and it's my, I eventually had to hire an attorney just to keep the insurance company honest. Insurance company was the dirtiest player in the whole thing. Anyway, that's another story. But so, so I turned to him and I said, I said, I stepped back and I said, look, I said, before we continue with this briefing, we all just need to get something really straight. I said, I'm obedient to the laws of God. And there is nothing you can say or do that will cause me to change that. And so if I'm, you know, if that means you're going to drop representation and I'm going to prison, that apparently God wants me to go to prison to organize the last group of, of entrepreneurs <laughs> that I need to run the country when this country fails. So Gandhi went to prison, Martin Luther King went to prison, I can go to prison. I said, but, you know, let, let me, it was kind of like, you know, Desi Arnaz and Lucy, Lucy, let me explain you something. I said, I said, now, now, you guys went to law school, but I believe in the law. You don't believe in the law. This whole briefing, you don't believe in the law. And I said, but I believe in the law, but starting with God's law. So that's what it's going to take to, to work with me. And if you don't like that, please drop, because I don't want to work with you. There was like 14 lawyers looking at their shoots because they were so humiliated because they did go to law school They because they believed in the law and they wanted to practice the law. You know, so they got these two girls basically <laughs> giving them a little, little legal. Spanking them. Right, spanking them. And so, and I think, I think a lot of them were really good guys. I mean, the, the guy we had in the court of claims was fantastic. 
So they were kind of ashamed. And, and, um, and then three months later, the attorney who I ended up accepting and working with told me that when he said that, he assumed we were gonna lose. And that was the moment when he realized we were gonna win. Really? Yeah. It was, and I said, that's a metaphysical thing, isn't it? The law is metaphysical. You have to stand to make it work. Yeah. You have to believe to make it work. One of the great things about that whole process for me was when it started, I didn't believe in the law. And then I went through a process and I saw the power of how the law can work because so many people are willing to make it work. It's a spiritual covenant. It's an energetic covenant. And I can't tell you how many government employees, you know, protected us, helped us because they believed in the law and they believed we believed in the law and we're practicing the law. It was, it was miraculous. I talked to a lot of whistleblowers on this show and I just uh, recently did a, um, an interview with Dr. Paul Alexander, who blew the whistle on, on Fauci's uh, policies, COVID policies, as he was, he was brought in by the Trump administration as a consultant and he blew the whistle. And of course they tried, they, Fauci came right after him and tried to crush him. And, um, you know, he was saying the same thing that you say, you know, these are good people. They're just caught up in this, in this evil system. And, and I guess part of what I struggle with is how good people can allow themselves to be part of this. At so some point you have to say, you have to say to yourself, I, I got to stand up because otherwise my core, my soul is being sucked out. I found it's very complex. It's not a simple thing to talk about why do people go along. And, you know, I will tell you that the number one obstacle um, right now, I believe is entrainment technology. In other words, if you look at what's working through the smartphones and the digital media, you know, we have significant high high tech entrainment going on and it's what do you mean by entrainment i was on wall street when i first learned about entrainment technology i heard two billionaires talking about entrainment technology that was going to be rolled out in television and it scared me to death you know i was one of those people especially during that period i was totally fearless nothing ever frightened me and when i heard about entrainment i got scared to death um entrainment and the i'm the last person who should explain this to you you need a scientist but entrainment technology, what it does is it, it basically makes you feel good. You know, it causes resonation and it opens you up. And then subliminal programming is added. And that's what causes you to literally at a subconscious level, you know, change your mind. So let, let me give you an example, a story. Um, and this, is a, this was a huge aha moment. I have a relative who really prides herself as a homemaker on providing nutritious food for her family. Very aware, very concerned. And I tried for years to get her to understand she couldn't take her grandchildren to the junk food restaurant. McDonald's. So, so finally, when Supersize, the documentary Supersize came out, I'm assuming you've seen it. Yes, yes. Yes. I, you know, I had to pull her hair and teeth and everything, but I got her to watch it. And she called me and she said, oh my God, 
She said, I had no idea. She said, I'm never going to take the kids there again. You know, I'm, I'm so stunned. Now, every night she and her husband would watch TV with this huge digital flat screen TV. And, and, you know, I don't, ever since I heard the billionaires on Wall Street talk about entertainment, I haven't had a TV. So she, uh, a couple weeks later, she dropped her grandchildren off. I was going to take them to the museum in town. So I was driving into the museum. She dropped them off and she said, oh, she said, the kids are hungry. Could you stop at McDonald's on the way in and get some, something to eat? She had completely forgotten. Wow. It was like a memory wipe. It was a complete memory. She just forgotten. How does it actually work? If you come into Solari and you uh, put in uh, mind control, right, you'll get a um, a collection of the best videos, documentaries, and books that I've found so far on this kind of technology. Okay. Um, one of the best books is a book that Dr. Farrell wrote, where he describes, you know, sort of what's happening in the culture at a deep level education and propaganda and disinformation and then the high-tech technology. Um, and the technology is very powerful. I tell the story, one of the links is to a Solaria report we did on entrainment because as an investment advisor, I found I had clients who were getting defrauded with this technology. People would call them on the phone and be using it to market you know, really bad investments and they would fall for it. And I finally ended up I had one wonderful client who was very educated, very smart, good at investment, and they wanted to buy a silver ETF that was trading at 20% above market when you could buy gold, you could buy the coins for say two to 3% above market. And I found myself in a real food fight with her and I realized, oh, they're I think they're using entrainment. So I went to a scientist who had tried to educate me about how it works. You know, and the, the tech, you know, the science goes in one ear and out the other. And, and um, so I went to him and I said, Adam, you've got to do a Solaria report with me because people are being defrauded. Right. And, and not just with investments, you know, people who buy consumer products online they can't afford. Or, you know, I think porn, I think porn is a great way to create control files on people very economically. Oh, my God. Quickly. I mean, let's, you know, that's a huge subject unto itself. The whole Epstein Maxwell thing has, has uh, blown open just a little bit of it. I mean, they're trying to, right. but the whole sexual blackmail thing from the Franklin, the Franklin scandal right now, which, which was a scandal back in the, what was it? Seventies. I think the end of, no, it was the end of the eighties. It was the 80s. end of the eighties where, where they were uh, trafficking kids to um, political figures and very powerful people in Washington. The Franklin scandal now is called a conspiracy theory. Okay. It's, it's one of the best documented cases of pedophilia blackmail yes. that we've ever found yes and nick so, bryant he wrote he wrote the book nick bryant and, I, and I've, I've i've spoken to him and of course i'm talking i've interviewed him also about the epstein and galane maxwell thing and it's so interesting how in the courts they're focusing the case only on you know one 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 count of of uh child uh you know marketing they have reduced her crimes to practically nothing 
And that's how they keep the lid on the fact that it's a huge intel operation. So they using sexual blackmail with pedophiles. I think the way they keep the lid on it is, you know, people like Colby drowning. Well, yes, but right. but it's interesting what's going to happen to Ghislaine Maxwell. I mean, Epstein, he's gone. Ghislaine Maxwell, her case, you know, is just not even I wouldn't even call it a limited hangout. There was practically no hangout at all. No, no connection to the intelligence aspect of all this. And it's huge. Let me go to the porn and then come back to Epstein. Okay. The, I believe that if you look at what happened in the 90s, that that online porn was part of the key to stealing 21 trillion from the federal government. Because you could create so many control files in the bureaucracy by getting people addicted to watching porn on government computers. Oh, fascinating. Because they can't afford to turn Epstein on, you know, 500 government accountants and 500 IT contractors running the payment systems. But they can use online porn to do that. I mean, all I need to do is get porn added with entrainment technology to get you addicted and then migrate you, even without you realizing it, to a website that has an underage actress. You might not even realize it. And bam, I've got you on a felony. Right? Wow. You know how, how many government accountants and IT contractors you can get that way? I mean, the last survey I saw a year ago was 98% of the men in America watch porn. And 98%? Wow. 98% had watched porn in the last six months, I think. So wow. who knows if the survey is legitimate? But what I'm telling you is if you, if you use entrainment technology to, to get people addicted to that and you can use a variety of ways to hook them or feed them, you know, subliminal programming. Why is porn so big? I don't get it. I think the reason porn is so big is because of the entrainment technology. Also, the, the more people feel powerless, you can engineer the porn in a way that is not only entertaining, but makes them feel powerful and gives them pleasure. You take pleasure away in all their real life. So, you know, if you look at all the things done to turn men and women against each other and to make, you know, the, the real life sexual experience uncomfortable or difficult or risky, you know, and then right, you offer right. an online alternative, which is pleasurable and has no risk. Associated Ever since the AIDS epidemic, the so-called AIDS epi epidemic, you know, sex has become something dangerous, you know, and now it's not just with the COVID uh, so-called COVID pandemic, even, you know, being in somebody else's company has become dangerous. There's extraordinary efforts to turn men and women against each other. And if we could undo that, then the speed at which so many other solutions happen. I discovered as an investment advisor that it is relatively easy to, and this I'm referring to financial fraud now, it's relatively easy to trick a woman and it's relatively easy to trick a man. It is almost impossible to trick a man and woman working together. They are so much more powerful oh, and so, so much harder. And if you want to control the kids and take the kids away, you need to turn the men and women against each other. The spiritual and psychological warfare that we are up against is extraordinary. Yeah, it's and massive. It's massive. 
And it took me decades to unpack it, understand it, see how it worked. There's, um, I have a series that's subscriber only now called Deep State Tactics 101. It's 12 parts where I went in total detail through all of these things, you know, gruesome detail. But I also just did an interview that's public with Ulrich Goniger called uh, Control and Freedom are One Person at a Time, because all of this stuff is manipulating each person one at a time. And when the body politic wants to send us to the right or send us to the left, you know, they deliver these systems one person at a time to get everybody to go along. It's very complex and very, you know, it's an amazing machinery and, and control and influence is the number one industry in the world. If you well, just and now it's somewhat so easy to do because you have these massive social media platforms. So everybody is revealing themselves every day on these social media platforms. And, and, you know, you are a data point with all this data that's so attached I tell to you the story about our personnel files and Hamilton securities group. No. Okay. So we'll use that as the next story. Okay. So here I am in Washington with this investment bank. It's very successful. And we, I, I really believe in hiring forward and building forward. We hired a chief financial officer who was outstanding. He was by far and away the best person at the company. And he comes to me, it was in 1994, and he says, we need a personnel system. And so I want to go off and buy this software on, you know, and I looked at all the companies in the software and I said, you know, I don't want those people in my business. I said, what we're going to do because we were working with websites, is we're going to teach all the employees as part of the annual bonus process, the annual assessment and bonus, to make their own page on the website. And then we'll stitch them together on the internet, and that will be our personnel system. So I don't know, wasn't that much longer when Facebook came out? Oh, so I said, you know, instead of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, we'll just do it ourselves. We, we had started a data servicing company to create jobs for welfare mothers in low-income neighborhoods. And one of the things we discovered at that point was that the US government had exploding data servicing needs. I think the next year they were estimating as a result of the welfare bill, they needed another $6 billion. And the guy I had doing the research came to me and I said, what do they need that money for? And he said, to build files on all of us. Yeah. And so then Facebook came out and I said, oh my God, they're doing the same thing I was doing with the internet. They're gonna have us maintain and keep the files on ourselves. It's very clever. Anybody watching this is now going to be paralyzed with a feeling of powerlessness. You're not powerless at all. In other words, I think I told you last time, I used to have a pastor say, if we can face it, God can fix it. So you're not, you're not going to fix this. And by the way, through our taxes, we're paying billions, if not trillions of dollars every year for other people to fix it, not us. So let me tell you the next story I have on my list. When I left the Bush administration, I really believed that the, you know, that the people were going to, uh, or sort of the leadership was going to get a hold of the technology and use it to institute complete control. So I really felt it was, it was important to go come up with a different plan. And the first thing, one of the first things we did when we created the company is we built databases that integrated all the government money by place. So if I go to the White House and I look at the, you know, the annual budget of the federal government, it shows me all the money in military or all the money in transportation, all the money in housing, but it doesn't show me all the money in your neighborhood. So 
you vote for political representation from your state or your congressional district. You need to see financial statements for your congressional district. So we thought, okay, let's, you know, let's build that. And um, uh, anyway, so we started to make a tool called Community Wizard. And, and two things happened that were very interesting. And, and so I'm gonna tell you one story and then another based on that. One was, uh, I had a, an old partner from Wall Street who came down while we were building this tool and he was telling me that our political situation was hopeless, the system was too corrupt, there's nothing you could do. So I said to him, well, Luis, his name was Luis Mendez, brilliant guy. I said, I started to explain the software tool, Community Wizard, that could look at all the name, all the money, both by function and by place. So, you know, we could. That's brilliant, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you could say, um, you know, my neighborhood is my town or my neighborhood is my congressional district or my neighborhood is my county or my neighborhood is my zip code. And then it would pull up as sources and uses on government money. So you could look at it contiguous to the world that you walked around. And, you know, and one of the reasons that Community Wizard got us in trouble was we were making maps that showed the foreclosures in South Central LA. <laughs> and that's how I found out about the dark alliance allegations because when the people who knew about the crack cocaine epidemic looked at the maps, they were like, holy cow, do you realize what this is showing? Anyway, so, Luis comes down to Hamilton Securities and I, I'm bragging about Community Wizard. So he says, this is stupid, it'll never work. And I said, well, where do you live? He says, well, I live in Bronxville in Westchester. So I said, okay, you know, we had these big monitors. I said, let's pull up and look at what Community Wizard says about Bronxville. So the first thing that we pull up is a list of the big expenditures from the year before. And one of the top items is flood insurance. And Luis, who, who grew up in Cuba, explodes in Spanish, screaming, it's so corrupt. I said, why is, you know, why is, why is this corrupt? He said, Bronxville's on a hill. We don't have floods. Because <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of shenanigans in the insurance program. So now I know nothing about, you know, what, what that was or what it was. Anyway, so finally, Luis just gets totally engaged. We spend a couple hours going through all the numbers on Bronxville. We give him a printout of the database for Bronxville. And the next morning I had a conference call with him on, um, sort of next steps on what we were doing from a business standpoint, and he's always on time. So I call, his phone's busy, it's busy, it's busy. I can't get through. For hours, I can't get through. Finally, I get through that afternoon. I said, Luis, we had a conference call at 1030. Where have you been? He said, irate, just so pumped up, very intense guy. He says, I've been on the phone with the deputy mayor of Brockville's for the last you know, three hours, going through all these numbers, one by one by one. He said, all of this corruption, it's going to stop. And I said, Luis, I thought you said it was hopeful, hopeless. He said, that was until I had the numbers for my neighborhood. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. You, need, you need that all over the country. They seized our offices, seized the computers, took everything. When I finally- Who's they? Six, Wait, who's The Department they? of Justice and the FBI. When I finally got all the- computer files and the, we had backups on some, but the, a lot of the most valuable documentation was in paper. When I got everything out from the uh, special master six years later, the most valuable databases were gone. Well, yes. I tried to rebuild it, build it several times, but nobody wanted anything to do with helping us. And we ran into so much sabotage. And the other thing is it was very interesting. 
you know, periodically throughout this process, I would get these calls from people who were, uh, I'll describe them loosely as lower level members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and they'd take me to lunch or dinner and say, you know, now, dear, and, and one of them came through and said, you know, now, dear, we think it would be a good idea for you to start Community Wizard again. And I realized, I froze and I realized, oh, now that they've put up Google and all these other things, they're ready for all the neighborhoods to collect up their data and put them up to them. And so I, I never rebuilt Community Wizard at, at the end. I said to everybody, I want you to put together the data on your neighborhood, but I want you to keep it in a folder on your kitchen table and don't put it online. If you come to Solari, we have a great Solari report, it's public, called Unpacking Your Local Financial Ecosystems with you know, an introduction on how to do it and all these great books and materials. And you know what I tell all the mothers who are irate about what's going on at the local school board or all these other things is I said, look, just unpack their finances. If you dig into their budget and their finances and their bonding and how the money's being managed, you know, including on the pension funds, you're going to get so much political leverage you can take over the school board. Now, what I found, oddly enough, is most people refuse to do it. It's like there's a force field and they won't touch the money. They're afraid of it. And, and they say, oh, I'm not good at money. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Let me tell you the next story. So we're doing Community Wizard, and we're using the data to simulate how the money really works in the economy. And it was fabulous because it totally changed my mind about how local economies work and grow. And I, I learned a huge amount. And we had, we had a program with MIT where we would hire um, their graduate students, usually out of IT, you know, PhDs in IT. And our theory was it was easier to take sort of PhDs out of MIT and teach them real estate investment banking than to get investment bankers and real estate people to embrace the new technology, okay? So we would hire these brilliant kids and we hired this wonderful um, young man who was a PRC citizen. He'd been at TMN Square and was sick the day that the violence started and several of his friends were killed. So he left and came to America, went to MIT, absolutely brilliant. And I asked him, look, go off and simulate, now that we've got all this data in here, how much wealth we could create if we change the financial system so that living equity and financial equity had a win-win relationship. What is so living equity? When I was assistant secretary, I invented an index called the Popsicle Index, okay? The Popsicle Index is... And Community Wizard was organized around the Popsicle Index. The Popsicle Index is the percent of people in your neighborhood who believe a child can leave their home, go to the nearest place to buy a Popsicle alone and come back safely. So when I was a little girl in West Philadelphia, it was unthinkable that I couldn't run up to Spruce Street, play the pins, get a Popsicle and come home alone. It was unthinkable. And the whole neighborhood was like watching out for me. So, you know, that's just the way it was. Now. When I was a kid, you know, in those years, the Dow Jones index was 150, 200, right? So, so the Dow Jones has gone up steadily and the Popsicle index has gone down steadily. Right, right. Okay, that's a win-lose relationship between financial equity and, and living equity, okay? Because 
you know, so living the, equity is your is your quality of life, basically. Living equity is is living beings. So it's the people, it's the animals, it's the right. plants, it's the trees. Okay, it's the environment. It's life. Okay. Yes. Okay. So so we're liquidating life. When you bring drugs, narcotics trafficking into a neighborhood, you're liquidating life to make a profit. Right. And when I was a little kid, my neighborhood was destroyed by narcotics trafficking and related mortgage fraud. That's how I first got interested in HUD because my neighborhood was wrecked by HUD fraud. I, I watched it. I saw it every day. I used to walk by this. Um, there were four uh, home builder scam deals catty corner to where my parents' row house was. And I would walk by the sign. There was this huge sign outside of them for years. And it said, by order of the Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner. And <laughs> there were people, I had a family of six across the street from me who were living in a one-bedroom apartment. And these houses are sitting there empty. And I used to walk by and I would look at this title, Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner. And I would think, who is this asshole? Yeah. And how could they let this happen? And so yeah. when I got sworn in, the secretary said, by order of the president, you are now the Assistant Secretary of Housing, FHA Commissioner. And I said, I'm the asshole. <laughs> I have become. <laughs> I have become the asshole. And the first thing I did was I walked down to the office wow. and I said to my deputy, how many foreclosed properties do we have in America? He said, 50,000. I said, that's going to change. Now, what I didn't realize, that was the basis of this huge mortgage securities fraud business. And, you know, I was going to interrupt their game. Anyway, so let me go back to the story of, you know, so I said to this wonderful a uh, wonderful guy working for us. I said, okay, figure out if we could just stop all this crazy business and run the government money to produce the most wealth possible in a world where people can make money on taking the Popsicle Index back up to 100%. You know, so the Dow Jones and the Popsicle Index are friends, you know, instead of enemies. Right. You know, what could that look like? And he came back with the numbers and it was so big, I said, that can't be right. You, you've made a mistake, go do it again. So this went on for several turns where I said, look, that can't be right, go do it again. And finally he said, look, I'm right. And you have to take the weekend off and just focus on this and, and look. And what I did, and he was right. And what I realized was if you could build an economy where living equity and financial equity were had a win-win, lose-lose relationship, which is easily, I mean, think about it. Everybody can make money from making the landscaping beautiful or ending environmental pollution or, you know, it was unbelievable, but then you can't have central control, you know? So, so, and it's a massive change politically because, yes. yeah, it, because everybody's making money on the way things are now. I can't tell you how many, how many people make money on growing poverty. Poverty is a huge business. Lots of people make money on it. Like who? It Just I'll tell you know. the story. I was up in 1996 at the Harriman Estate. One of the foundations wanted to bring all the community foundations together. And my partners and I made a presentation about what we'd done with data servicing in poor neighborhoods. You know, the welfare was kicking massive number of people off of welfare. And what we discovered is it was relatively easy to teach them data servicing that they could do nearer home with flexible hours because they have kids and caregiving responsibilities to elderly parents. And they were a fantastic workforce, very productive. It was easy, relatively easy to teach them. And then 
you know, uh, and, and we could, you know, it was, it was very much a win-win. Anyway, so we're making this presentation and basically what we said is, you know, many people can come off of government subsidies and, and instead of spending 55 to $150,000 a year to either have them in a HUD subsidized housing or prison, prison was the new game. Um, and we the new industry, that. yeah. The new industry. Um, we can convert them into people who pay taxes. And we, you know, so we don't need the 55,000 to 150,000 of subsidy and they become taxpayers. And anyway, so when we we had a movie that we, uh, one of my partners was from Hollywood and we had made a movie about how this could work. And so you could envision it. We turn on the lights and 30 heads of community foundations looked totally depressed. One person from the foundation from one of the New York Fed member banks said, um, well, we, we, we don't want to finance this. <laughs> and one of my partners said, but we have foreign banks who finance it. We don't need to. Remember, it makes money. It's, it's for right. profit. And so we don't, we don't need CRA financing. And the woman from the bank just looked like, you know, anyway, we go to bed, go to breakfast the next morning, and the head of the Fannie Mae Foundation comes in, and he's got his oatmeal, and we're talking, I said, you know, as somebody I like very much, he said, that was the single most depressing presentation I've ever seen. I said, why? We can end poverty. He said, yeah, but then you're saying my life's work is meaningless. I said, your business is to grow property, manage property. Why don't we just get rid of property? That is deep. Can I tell you something? They all hated it. And it was part of, you know, the process by which I made more enemies than I intended. Who would know until you really start looking into it, how this is all based on financially enslaving people forever. This is this full spectrum control. So you're yes. talking about spiritually enslaving, mentally enslaving, yes, you know, intellectually enslaving, physically enslaving. I mean, they, you know, during this period, the physical addictions, whether it's narcotics trafficking or sugar, are just going off the charts. Well, because people are are spiritually bereft. A lot of time and effort has gone into making everybody insular and isolated. It's interesting that you say that because I have felt a need for such a long time to try and connect my very my the members of my community in some way especially since i'm sort of worried about the future and and what could happen to everybody but you know in my immediate community how can we help each other and support each other if you know the you know what hits the fan and um what you're saying completely confirms right. what i've seen since i have lived in the united states and uh what you're trying to do and i and i think I think that's very important to, to say that, you know, is that people need right. to literally reach out to their next door neighbors and start right. a conversation and start figuring out how there can be a community. The only, I'll tell you what, the only place I have ever seen real community still, and it struck me because I, when I saw it, was I, I went into this Orthodox Jewish community here in Jersey Mm -hmm. And everybody on this one street, all the, the, the women, the mothers were outside and they were talking and, and uh, I don't know how many kids, because, you know, they have a lot of kids, right? All these kids were out in the street playing together and you sense this cohesiveness. And it was such a, I mean, I was almost moved. It was to a tears. beautiful thing. The, yeah. Um, 
I grew up in a neighborhood where everybody lived on the stoops in the summer. And if you've ever seen Spike Lee's movie, Crooklyn, that's what it was like. We're all out on the stoops. It was so much fun. It yeah. was beautiful. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's, it's necessary. And that's what keeps people. I mean, people need to, I think people need to feel connected to each other mm-hmm. and they need to feel uh, valuable, not like they're contributing. Right. And right. that has been completely sucked out of everybody through this continual now it's social media and and it's tv they want you resonating with the machine and talking to the machine instead of each other and definitely not face to face because face to face there's that energetic exchange right that's metaphysical you know it's an energy that makes you want to care and help and be part of and so on so it's genius the things that you are doing and it really needs to get out there. I'm very curious what you think of Elon Musk and because he he is a, a you know he's a billionaire, he's a visionary, he's a guy with Asperger's, he's a guy who he, he smokes dope, he's a guy who wants to buy Twitter and 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 he says wants to make it free. What is your assessment of of Elon Musk? So Elon Musk is building the control grid. That's his job. Wow. So talk about that. Electric cars are part of complete control because you can't, you know, they can turn off your electric, they can turn your car off wherever you are. Right. So, and, and then SpaceX is the, you know, the control grid runs is very going to be very dependent on satellites and making sure you can get internet services into any place you have ubiquitous internet sufficient to run the transportation and control grid off of it. So Elon Musk is building the control grid. And I think part of his appeal for the leadership is he makes it fashionable. He makes it cool. He makes it groovy. Um, I think uh, he's- Neuralink is, is what scared me. The chip that will allow you to think your, your computer on or think your lights on or whatever. And right, then so I was reading the, how the other side of that is you can be hacked and controlled, mind controlled. And I just thought this is so strange because he presents this sort of uh, this fat, you know, I'm for democracy. I want free speech. Everybody thinks he's now the free speech messiah. And I've just, I've just had this gut feeling. He's he's building, he's helping to build a control grid. That's his job. And, um, and he, he, if you look at what he's done, um, with a series of different businesses, he couldn't do it without massive institutional support. So, you know, nobody can do what he's doing without that kind of support. Um, and whatever he's doing with Twitter, it's a little bit like Bezos buying Amazon. Twitter is a wonderful website that covers politics um, in Washington called Conservative Treehouse. And they have a new post called Jack's Magic Coffee Shop. <laughs> and it's about a a, a mystical, you know, it's an, in your imagination. It's an imaginary coffee shop that sells coffee for free. And all you have to do is look at the ads when you're in there. And of course, the question is, how are these guys covering their rent? Well, they're covering their rent because there's something else going on. And basically what they describe is all these different social media platforms are intelligence gathering for a variety of, you know, other players. And, and they're not businesses in the traditional sense. That's not their... Their business model is, it's just as I described Facebook, you know, is to, is to give the intelligence agencies, the government and their large contractors who run everything and the banks, 
you know, the data they need in a very economic way. You know, you have everybody provide you with the data you need. So that's the business model. And I just think, you know, whatever Musk is up to, he's it's just going to be part of the conversation.